By now you know about Facebook's role in politics, but how did it get there and why is it now backing away? Today on Big Tech War Stories, we take you deep inside the company, on the ground with someone who spent 10 years on Facebook's policy team, including running its elections unit, to discuss how Facebook handled politics, why it wanted it, and whether it can actually take a step back as major elections come its way. Our guest today is Katie Harbaugh. She's the founder and CEO of Anchor Change and someone with firsthand knowledge of how Facebook helped political candidates operate on the platform, where things went south, how influence campaigns impacted the company, and the social network's calculations moving forward. I'm so glad to welcome Katie to the show to hear her story as well as Facebook's. Katie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. We're going to get into some of your war stories and the heart of Facebook, but I want to start at the very beginning for this story because hearing about your political upbringing, your evolution, I think is super important to kick off this story because when it comes to talking about politics within the big tech companies, everybody's curious about the politics of the employees. So talk a little bit about your your childhood and how you developed a political identity. Yeah, I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and my family actually wasn't that political. They voted, and I knew that they voted the importance of it, but they actually really, they wouldn't tell me who they voted for. And it wasn't until I went to college where I started to, my first election I voted in was 2000. Madison tends to be a much more liberal university, but I started working at the conservative newspaper. I started digging into a bit more of where I landed on different issues and stuff like that. And really it was after 9-11 and President Bush's response to that, that made me really admire how he was handling that and getting more involved in politics. And while I was in school, some of the folks I'd worked with at the student newspaper were working on Norm Coleman's Senate race in 2002. Now, folks who've been around politics for a while might remember that as the race when Paul Wellstone died in a plane crash about two weeks before Election Day. And so I caught the political bug there and moved out to D.C. in 2003 to work for the Republican National Committee during President Bush's reelect in 2004. And I was in the communications department and wrote a memo to my bosses about all this stuff I thought we should be doing online. And they were like, congratulations, it's yours. Um, So this is before Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, any of those sort of existed. And between then and through the 2010 cycle, I bounced around different Republican campaigns working on digital stuff. Now, just like talking about the political philosophy, like what on the Coleman campaign did you see that made you feel aligned with the Republican ideology? I mean, was it just you know, effectively Bush's response or the Republican response to 9-11 or was it, did it run deeper? So I would actually separate these two things out. So the Coleman campaign has got me the political bug to work in politics, to love campaigns, how campaigns worked, the fast pace of campaigns, of wanting, of liking that type of job. The Republican ideology really came more from me both looking at, I was like, I'm more socially liberal, but more like fiscally conservative. I I come from a family of hunters, so we own guns. We go hunting. We have, you know, those sort of, um, some of those beliefs and and things of that nature. Um, And then I I do think a lot of politics, like, especially I'm this way now in terms of a voter, I'm really looking candidate by candidate because there's nobody that you're going to 100% agree with. And I voted for Democrats. I voted for Republicans uh, throughout. But that was sort of 
early on, it was a bit of just kind of really aligning with with some of where Republican Republicans and particularly President Bush's responses to 9-11 were things that I found myself agreeing with. I mean, it's rare for young voters to be fiscally conservative. It's kind of interesting. You found you were there. Was that uh, something that was influenced by your family or how did you come to that? I think so. And I think some of it, I didn't even realize it was influenced my family until my parents and I started talking more about politics when I was still in college. Um, because I remember my grandfather one day was like, so are you a Democrat or Republican? And before I could really answer, my dad was like, she better be a Republican. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Like, you know, and over the years now, we've actually started having more of these conversations. And I think it was just a lot of the ways that I was, was being brought up. I mean, we were a well middle-class family, but I, I had no idea like what my dad's salary was or anything. I just knew how he was really bringing us up around having to, you know, my dad made each of us kids. We had to work at the paper mill that he was at um, at least one summer um, to know what it was like to work a 12 hour swing shift and have to be paying for your own stuff and things of, and things of that nature that I think, again, while it was happening, I didn't realize what values were being instilled in me. It's not then looking back at it where you're kind of like, oh, now I get how some of that was being, you know, how my dad and my mother brought us up was influencing my political ideology once I got to be an adult. You spent quite some time working in Republican politics, starting, and I think you mentioned this, the associate director of what they called e-communications for the RNC. And and then you uh, worked for Rudy Giuliani's presidential committee in 2007. Um, and then you became the chief digital strategist for the National Republican Senatorial Committee in 2009. You did that for a while, actually, 2009 to 2011, before moving to Facebook in February 2011. Now, the meme about Silicon Valley is that it's super liberal. So how did you as a Republican feel coming into a place like Facebook? So Facebook had hired Adam Connor in late 2007, early 2008, when Facebook created Facebook pages. And they wanted to start getting, they had created one for every member of Congress, and they wanted to have somebody in DC to start getting those folks on the platform. And so um, there, there was a small group of people who were sort of digital strategists back then on both the left and the right. A lot of us actually formed friendships back then, because even though we might have different ideological backgrounds. We all had kind of the same goal of we wanted our candidates and elected officials to be using these platforms more and to be online more. And so I got to know Adam and some other folks at the Facebook office, like Andrew Noyes, who was doing comms at the time. And they actually approached me after the 2010 election because they were like, listen, President Obama is going to be running for reelect, but there's going to be all these, there's an open Republican primary field. We know that in general, these campaigns are going to feel more comfortable with somebody who comes from that background and knows these folks, et cetera. And so would you be interested in, in joining so that Adam would handle the Democrats and then I would handle the Republicans? And so that conversation happened like a week or two after the November 2010 election. And then I got the offer in February 2011 and started a couple weeks later. Right. And like back then it was just kind of assumed, like, of course, these platforms want the candidates to join. I'm kind of curious, looking back, like what was the reason that Facebook was so invested in bringing political energy onto the platform? Now, I can think of like a few reasons. Engagement might be one and it adds like a heft of legitimacy. 
if like, for instance, presidential candidates are posting on the platform? Is that kind of what motivated the company? Well, I think first there's there's a co- competition angle, which goes a little bit to what you're saying about engagement and legitimacy. You know, in the 2008 cycle and even earlier than that, MySpace had hired somebody to be working with candidates to get them on MySpace. Mm-hmm. YouTube hired somebody that YouTube did a big debate with CNN uh, in the 2008 cycle. And so at the time, a lot of these platforms were like, if we want to be seen as a place where people want to go, we want, you know, a lot of them were using the phrase around being the town square, um, being the place where this conversation was happening, because the thought process was, if these big names are there, they're breaking news on it, et cetera, other users will want to be there to see that sort of conversation Mm -hmm. happening. And so it was not just politics, right? There were a lot of celebrities, musicians, there was a lot of competition for different influencers, if you will, and prominent figures across these different platforms. And I would say the early 2010s. It's interesting because like the platform viewed this as something that was going to be good for the platform. Um, but it's, they, they hired the, you know, you and, and and your counterparts to actually work with the campaigns to help them figure out how to use the platform best. Now, at this point, were the platform, were the campaigns starting to think that if they did a great job on Facebook, for instance, that could lead to real electoral impacts? And then, if they did, do they think that there, like, there was help that your team could give them, for instance, that would help them gain an edge? Like, was it already at that advanced level of thinking? No, I would say early on, it was still very much of. Some people were very much supportive of it. Some people were still like, why in the world do I want to post my lunch, right? That's kind of what they viewed social media. And I think that (laughs) in the Mm pre-2012 phase, you could still get news. Like I remember, I think Tim Pawlenty announced his exploratory committee on Facebook. You could get more press and earned media by using these tools. You kind of see it happening now with AI, right? Like the RNC uses AI in their ad Mm -hmm. against Joe Biden and everybody covers it because they're like, oh my God, they're using AI. So it was kind of something similar to that. And so there were some where like, we just want to look digitally savvy And so this is a way for us to help do it. Um, Ads was very rudimentary at the time. Um, Some people might be trying it out for fundraising or email list building. But a lot of the tools, um, even in 2012, I don't even know if I think in-feed ads came that year maybe or like the year after. So they were still in a lot of right-hand side ads. You didn't have mobile um, yet. Custom audiences came out in 2012. So (laughs) a lot changed in that particular year. And particularly then with all the attention on how President Obama's campaign was using data and digital, that really poured gasoline on the fire of people being like, oh my gosh, this thing could actually help us to, to do some of this, um, to do some of this work. And we need to, to pick up the pace on how we're using it. In terms of me and like our team, you know, we weren't doing strategy conversations with them. We we're like, here's the different tools. Here's the types of posts we see work best. Like, don't just do like a picture of you doing a handshake with somebody, like make it a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, personable or candid, um, things of that nature that we found work well. So as we were rolling out different tools, we would help them to, to use that. And then they were having to, to make the decisions of what they, what they actually did. And then they were usually calling us up, like if something was broken or not working right, or like, they'd be like, Hey, any tips on what you're seeing others do that you think we should be trying stuff like that. And this was kind of this moment where Obama was looked at as like the first social media or the first digital president and had like obviously used these tools to great effect. And there was a report written within the Republican Party that was effectively like, we need to step up our game in these arenas or we're toast. Uh, was that like right after 2008 or after 2012? And can you kind of talk about like the state of play at that moment and the, the um, sort of how the two parties stacked up against each other? Yeah, so that report you mentioned was actually after 2012. But if I can really briefly go back to, you were kind of asking like the difference between Republicans and Democrats. If you go back to 2002, Republicans were actually heralded as innovators of using micro-targeting. It wasn't necessarily micro-targeting online, but it was using consumer data to be like, okay, we can more cheaply reach our voters on the Hallmark Channel versus NBC broadcast. And then after that, the Democratic Party was like, oh my gosh, we got to catch up on the data stuff micro-targeting, et cetera. And then the Republican Party kind of fell behind and fell on their, you know, didn't innovate. And after Obama in both 2008 and 2012, the Republican Party was like, we got to catch up on some of this stuff and, and how, we're, how we're using it. Let's hop back to 2012. So there's this primary, lots of different Republican candidates. Mitt Romney ends up winning the primary. And him and Obama just kind of run a conventional digital campaign against each other. But this stuff starts to become a little bit more prominent. Yeah, I think that Obama put a lot, both teams put a lot of effort into their data and digital operations. But Obama in particular, there were a lot of stories about him pulling folks in from Silicon Valley to do this, um, to do this sort of data analysis and number crunching to help make a lot of different decisions, which was seen very much as sort of bringing the Silicon Valley culture um, to politics in a way that we hadn't necessarily seen before. And was there pressure in 2012 for Facebook to put its thumb on the scale in any way and, you know, remove content from another candidate or to, to give amplification within the newsfeed? No, um, we weren't really like more. We were getting questions a lot of it. Like the things I remember most from that election were at one point in time in 2012, we accidentally took down Barack Obama's page for a brief <laughs> period of time one day because an engineer Wait, had what happened there. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny because an engineer had instituted a new swear list of swear words mm -hmm. being like any page that has this in its name or the about section, we shouldn't just let it be on the platform. And one of those words, um, one of those words was uh, Dick. And mm -hmm. President Obama had one of his favorite books was Moby Dick in mm -hmm. his About Us section. And so that ended up pulling down his page. Um, oh <laughs> and it's actually, you know, we've, you know, you've probably, you know, fast forward now to the Facebook files and oversight board, the whole cross check system that a lot of people have talked about, mm -hmm. trying to make sure something like that can't happen again, was sort of one of the origin stories of creating it so that not just anything could take down 
the president of the United States page because that's what had happened. Um, I remember there were a couple other bugs too, where like the Romney campaign would post something and it wouldn't appear right away, or it was a lot of bug stuff that was was happening, but not a lot on the content moderation question. There was starting to be some questions around the election day reminders that we ran because um, Nature had published a study in 2012 based on those a study we had done in. 2010 before I got there, showing that more people voted when they saw that their friends had shared that they voted and stuff like that. So you were starting to hear some questions from people of like, how do we know you're showing that to everyone? How do we know you're being fair mm-hmm. on that? Um, were were kind of the main questions that we were seeing coming out of that cycle. Yeah. You mentioned Crosscheck, which is a callback to one of these programs that was um, shown in the Facebook files, but can you like quickly just explain what that was and how that was, was the origin there, this Barack Obama page, or like, were you there at the beginning of this formation? I was there somewhat at the beginning of this formation mm-hmm. <laughs> of all of it, of the Frankenstein that it sort of came, but the initial, the initial thought process, and it wasn't called cross-check till many years later, but mm-hmm. the, the process was, is that something like this happens. And there were a couple of other instances too, and, you know, you get, you start to get pressure from others inside the company and other things of like, hey, it's not a really good look that just the president of the United States page can come down randomly um, and what that, what that might cause and people asking questions about the stability of your platform. What the heck are you doing? You know, are you a mature platform to be able to handle town square conversations and questions like that? And so it was like, let's have a a way to make sure that that just doesn't happen automatically Mm -hmm. and that somebody can get a flag or something of like, Hey, this, this thing triggered this thing. We should take a look at it to try to figure out what's happening. But yeah, that was sort of the origin story. And then you start, you know, over time, you're like, wait a second, we probably need to start putting guardrails around who can do this, what the rules are, what does that look like? How are you able to use it, et cetera? Like it, it very much, that's why I kind of call it a Frankenstein because over time, right. you just I mean, 22,000 people ended up being, I think, or no millions, right? Of, of users ended up being in cross check, something like that. And I don't remember if it was in the millions number, but it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big number in the, in the. Th- and that's scandalous when you have like two tiers of users, people that are uh, subject to Facebook's moderation policies and then fa- people that aren't. And that's kind of where it's Well, this hang on. Off, I think there there's some nuance okay. here that I think is important. We could do for. an entire mm-hmm. I know we could do an entire show just on on the cross check. But there is there's at least its initial intent as I know it was that it was not meant to give them an exception to the policies. It was meant to add a couple layers and steps to it so that it wasn't just happening automatically. There could be double checking to make sure that it was the right call, preparing comms responses, like just being more prepared in terms of if action needed to be taken on these accounts. Now, over time, as was seen in the files and stuff later, Mm -hmm. sometimes these things, the turnaround times were really, really long in terms of reviewing them. And so this content ended up staying up longer than what other people would would want it to, et cetera. And so then to your point, it ended up de facto being that it seemed like they were being, being given a pass on the content moderation policies because mm-hmm. they weren't being looked at and actioned upon later later on on it. And I think that it's a valid conversation to be had about mm-hmm. whether or not you should have 
if other people get their stuff down taken automatically, should you have different rules for people who are more prominent? Fact of the matter is one thing that you got to take into account is that those who are more prominent also have a bigger megaphone in which to go to the press or other things to cause problems for you um, as as a company that could lead into other problems as well. And so I think I think I can understand why people aren't wild about it. I can understand the business reason for having it as well. Um, and that's, I think, one of the tensions that we've all been sort of covering and thinking about as more of that program has come to light. And I think the Oversight Board did a really good job of kind of covering some of that nuance. Yeah, 5.8 million people were in crosscheck, 5.8 million users. So oh, wow. Okay. It's yeah. It's a lot. It's impo- kind of impossible to monitor appropriately that. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. Anyway, let's move on a little bit to uh, what happened next, because I think this is important getting to the heart of the matter here. So from 2012 to 2016, Facebook sees tremendous growth. I mean, I remember like I really got on the Facebook beat day to day in early or mid 2015 moved out to San Francisco. This was going to be the number one company I started covering. And I remember like every earnings report was just adding hundreds of millions more users and and just really exploding the, the growth-wise. Can you sort of talk about what it was like inside the company to experience that, that kind of growth? Yeah, I still remember when we hit the billion number, which I think was fall of 2012, I want to say, um, when that happened. And in fact, uh, colleague and I were, he had just found his hoodie that we all got that day. October when that, 2012. Yeah. So that, I mean, cause I remember that had been like a big milestone in Mark's mind and in others. And it was still sort of like a holy smokes, like <laughs> that, you know, you're actually, you're actually hitting that. And then I think, you know, post 2012, from a political standpoint, what I was seeing was that there was so much attention on, again, what President Obama had did and how he had used data and digital. And as we were building out our public policy team around the globe and other teams and stuff like that, more and more politicians were going to them being like, we want to do what he did. How Mm -hmm. do we do that? What does that look like? Can you help us use, like, how do we use Facebook? How do we create a page? How do we do a lot of that? And so I had, after the 2012 election, pitched to Facebook two things kind of. One, we should build out this team. We had somebody in Europe, but we should build out this team more internationally um, to have folks in the different regions to to work with these politicians and candidates. And then we should also, if we want, you know, coming out of 2012 at Facebook, we really thought it had been more of like the Google election. Google had had these big presences at the conventions. They were probably get, getting more money on political ads and stuff like that. And we were like, we wanted 2016 to be known as the Facebook election, which I always joke we did, just not in the way that we really meant to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I had seen how in 2014, it was going to be another huge year of elections. Um, And so I was like, we should think through, like, do we want to be helping people to understand the data of what people are talking about on the platform regarding the candidates and the issues, doing those election day reminders around the globe? The civic, we didn't have a product team yet. So this was just Mm -hmm. me. And uh, when I say team, like, it started off as three of us. I think we were five of us maybe by the end of 2013, mid-2014. So it still wasn't a very huge team that was doing a lot of this work, but it was like all kind of trying to be like, okay, what are the things we can 
try and partnerships to to do that we can learn from so that as the U.S. next round of the U.S. election happens, we can think about taking those learnings back here to the U.S. So in fact, it's, you know, a lot of people view like the 2016 election as kind of like an end to a story, but it really is the beginning, right? So can you talk, you know, take us inside Facebook in the 2016 election and like talk a little bit about what it was like working with both campaigns, like there's, it's been well documented, but apparently like Hillary did not want to work with the Facebook team, but Donald Trump's team did like talk a little bit about like what it was like working with those two campaigns and, and how the stakes were felt internally. Yeah. I think, you know, the, when it came to the election first, it was all the primaries and we were, you know, we co-hosted the first GOP primary debate with Fox news. We were doing debates with both sides in terms mm-hmm. of partnering. And then, yeah, when you got to the the actual nominees, same principles, like I mentioned, we're offering the same type of help, tools, trainings, et cetera, to, to both campaigns. And they're taking us up in different ways on that. And a lot of the Trump campaign was well known for bringing in a lot of different vendors and help and being like compete against one another, mm-hmm. prove to us that we should be spending our money with you and things of that nature. And the Clinton team was a bit more of like, we got this, we know what we're doing. Don't call us, we'll call you type of thing. And so mm-hmm. if if there was something that a tool that the Trump team was using, you know, that we had told them about, we'd tell the Clinton team. And again, they just had different approaches. And the Trump team was generally moved a lot quicker in terms of adapting and trying stuff at the time than, than the Clinton team did. We're going to continue on about what happened in the rest of the 2016 election and then the aftermath On the other side of this break, what happens after this break is going to be available to the paid subscribers of Big Technology. So if you're a paid subscriber, um, you either A, have this in your podcast feed already, or B, if maybe you're using Spotify and you can't get it in your feed, you can always listen on the actual bigtechnology.com page. It will be available to you as a paid subscriber. If you want to listen to the rest of this conversation and you're a free, free subscriber, you can upgrade and it will be available to you in your feed. Uh, it's about to get spicy. So we'll be back here on Big Tech War Stories with Katie Harbaugh talking a little bit about what happened in the rest of the 2016 election and in the aftermath. 